Okay, so we're back. Last episode, Dad, we were talking about your first Argus gig. So let's just carry on from there. Welcome to Count Four and You're In, a father and son podcast, where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodica, delving deep into his history and journey into the heart of the Australasian music industry, taking on the world with New Zealand band Mother Goose and his survival as a working drummer today. So you're 17 years old and you've joined Argus. Did you have any doubts that you were going to be good enough to be able to play at the level of your new bandmates? Well, I have to say that's a really good question because I did have some doubts. I mean, when you think about it, I was 15 and a half when I played my first gig and then suddenly I was 17 and I was asked to play with Argus. So you can see that I wasn't very experienced at all. So yes, I did have some doubts. I wasn't sure what I was in for. And I think that was the thing at the beginning. I wasn't sure what they expected of me. And so I went there with an open mind, pretty nervous, but it didn't take long for those guys to make me feel welcome and comfortable. And hence, obviously, I joined the band. They asked me to stay. I stayed and we did that first gig. Yeah, it was just a case of getting more confidence as I went on with it. Mm. But yeah, it was a bit weird at first. So the band members, who were they and what were they like? Well, Brian CQ was the singer. He was a redhead, um, sort of a freckly-faced redhead, but he had a great voice. And then there was Chris Davies. He was the guitar player. Dennis Gibbons was the bass player. And what they told me when I first joined the band was that they were getting a second guitarist who wasn't at the audition that I went to. His name was Peter Dixon. And Peter Dixon was living in Auckland. And he was playing in a band called Transformer. I hadn't heard of them. They were pretty glam rock from what Pete had told me. And so what happened was Pete wasn't at that first audition. And he was to come down to from Auckland to join the band. He was moving back to Dunedin. So someone must have known him, though, yeah. to, to get him into the... Yeah, well, Pete had been around Dunedin playing in bands like Rory and the Simpson Brothers. And remember that Peter was older than me. Those boys are all older than me. Yeah. So they were already <laughs> been in bands, and Peter had been in this band, and he was playing around Dunedin. I think I only saw them once, but I didn't know Peter at all. And so when I got to meet Pete, when Pete finally came down to the rehearsal, to the first rehearsal when he came down from Auckland, this guy came in to the practice room and he looked like he was straight out of Auckland. Yeah. Like he looked like a rock star. Yeah. I can't remember exactly, but I vaguely remember sort of a velvet or shiny shirt, flared pants, belt. He looked every bit the kind of rock Long star. Long hair probably. Long hair. Yeah. And I have to say that Pete and I just clicked. I'm still thinking when I'm playing with these guys, rehearsing with these guys, that I'm a straight little Catholic boy from Waldenville. And these guys have already been in bands. Peter's been in bands in Auckland. Looks like a rock star. I'm out of my depth here. And I did feel that for a while without a word of a lie. Yeah. But I needn't have worried because Pete just kind of took me under his wing. I think he could kind of see that I was this young kid, yeah. you know, trying nervous. to play an adult's game, a bit nervous. And and I love Pete for that because, and I still love him today. 
for that exact reason. He took me under his wing when I was really naive and really young, and he actually really, I would say, looked after me. Yeah. And he kind of helped me and guided me. And, of course, he was the, I call him the fashionista. He had all the clothes, and I didn't. I looked very uncool compared to Peter. Yeah. And it didn't take long for Pete to sort of, oh, Mars, you should put the shirt on. I've got a shirt that would suit you. Oh, you should try these pants on. I've got some pants that would suit you. And I could see over the next year or so he was trying to, you know. Make you fit in with a rock make star me, vibe. <laughs> make me what f- were you wearing oh, I before that? I was wearing flare jeans and a caftan T-shirt, probably. What did you end up wearing? Leather jacket? and. Well, no, I, I remember the first time I went out. In fact, the first time I went out with Lynn, my wife, who's now my wife, but when we first started going out, he lent me his shirt and I got a pair of black pants and I think he lent me a muslin shirt and I wore black pants and I felt really cool. Yeah. And partly because Pete yeah, gave yeah. it to me. So if he's, like, with, these are Pete's clothes. These are Pete's clothes. And if, if Pete's pretty cool, so maybe I might be cool too. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I love him for that. Yeah, nice. He, he looked after me. Nice. So how did the name Argus come about? Like, where does that come from? Well... We were all mad Wishbone Ash fans, and Wishbone Ash are a British band, and they're still going in some form or fashion. Great band, two dual guitar players, wonderful band. Well, they put me on to Wishbone Ash because they were already listening to Wishbone Ash. Yeah. And they had an album called Argus. That was the name of their album. Right. One of their biggest albums. And so someone said, oh, we're going to call the band Argus. I was like, okay. And what, everyone, Whatever. Everyone liked it, or everyone you, liked you just it. went we along said, with it. Oh yeah, we said must have said, oh, that's a really cool name. Yeah, that's good. Let's, let's go with that. Yeah, nice. So speaking of Wishbone Ash, they came to Christchurch in 1975 and did a, a concert. They did that. You guys went to. Yeah, I think it was the first international concert I, I'd been. No, no, the first international concert I'd been to was the Sweet in Dunedin with my friend Barry McConaughey. We went to the town hall and watched the suite. They were um, absolutely amazing. That's mm. another conversation. They were incredible. But Wishbone Nash, I think, were the next band, and they played up at an aircraft hangar at Wigram Air Base in Christchurch. That's I cool. think it was meant to be outdoors, but I think it got rained out and ended up in an aircraft hangar. Oh, that's cool, though. And I was near the front of the stage yep. watching the drummer, Steve Upton, who I just thought was the best thing ever. Mm. And to see them up close after calling the band Argus, and listening to that record, that was just incredible. What Isn't was the sound like in the aircraft? Oh, pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Pretty reverby. Yeah, yeah, Pretty yeah. echoey. But I think there was a few thousand people there. They were awesome, and I was up the front just loving every minute of it. So what drum kit were you playing when you were playing with Argus? So I see you had a six-piece drum kit, but you sold it to buy a Tama. Yeah, well, I had my Beverly kit, which were the ones mum and dad bought for me. Yeah. If they had so my you bedroom. still had that one. Yeah. I still had yeah. that. I went from there to a pearl kit. All right. So I bought a bigger pearl kit. It kind of oyster colours. I think it was purpley sort of stripy finish. And I played that for a while. And I honestly don't know why I got rid of it. Maybe because I saw the Tama drum kit in Bristol Piano in the music shop. And it was see-through. And at that point, Led Zeppelin's John Bonham <laughs> had... A see-through kit, which was orange in yeah, colour. Yeah, cool. And so this was a clear kit. This was just see-through clear. And I just, it looked amazing. And yeah. it looked different. And so I bought that kit. And I took it up to the rehearsal room in Moray Place. There was an old rehearsal room in Moray Place in Dunedin. 
uh, upstairs sort of lofty place where we used to rehearse. And I took it up there and I'll never forget the guys from Argus at band practice when I brought it in yeah. and started, set it up and started playing it. They all were just like, that is the loudest kit they'd ever heard, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I absolutely loved it. It's a really, really punchy drum kit. Consequently, it's now 2021, and for a long time, the drum manufacturers like Pearl and Ludwig and all those stopped making them. They were big in the 70s, mm. but the last 10 years or so, maybe a little longer, a lot of those brands started reissuing them. I saw a picture of a Pearl version, see-through, in a modern drummer magazine, and I opened up this page, and there was a double, like two bass drums a whole row of these see-through clear toms on a white background. And I thought, oh dear, I remember having one of those when I was a kid. I wouldn't mind another one. So I went to the rock shop in Dunedin, our local music retailer, and I said, what are my chances of getting a crystal beat there called a pearl crystal beat? And they said, oh, there's one coming to New Zealand from Japan, and it's going to Auckland. And I said, well, you better send it to Dunedin because I'm going to buy it. Nice. So I've got that kit now, yeah, yeah, which is nearly an identical kit, different brand. It's a great kit. It is a great kit. And the reason I got it is partly for that reason, yeah. for nostalgia. Yeah. Because I used to have one when I was young and I remembered it. I loved it. And I thought, well, I'm sure I'm going to love it now. Yeah. And I still love it. Like I remember when I jammed with a few guys back at school. Yeah. And Ben Sargent. Yes. His dad, what's it, Chris? Yeah, Chris Sargent. Chris Sargent. He's a local drummer. Yeah. Good drummer, and, Chris. Um, we would jam at his place. Um, I think it was in the basement or something like that. And Chris had a orange yeah. see-through Ludwig. Ludwig kit. Yeah. John Bonhams. Which I just remember playing that, and it just was awesome. It, it sounded is. so good. Yep. It played so good. Yep. Probably one of the best kits I've played, I think. I think um, so. And Ludwig are, are renowned for that drum kit. The John yeah. Bonham orange-coloured see-through drums. That's what it was like. Yeah, they're just amazing. And yeah. people, drummers today still idolise that drum kit. Yeah. Because they idolise John Bonham as well. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. You're listening to Count Four and You're In, our father and son podcast, where Harley Rodiker chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodiker. So Argus is well known for covers. Yeah, we're you played a, cover, a lot of covers. We you're were a, a cover band. band. That's what we were. Yeah, but you wrote an original song, yeah, we... which I didn't know about, <laughs> and it was called Lady. So tell us how <laughs> you was... managed to write I an original song. I have no idea. I think Brian, I think, came up with the lyrics. I don't know where the music came from. Maybe, obviously, just in a practice room jam. Yeah. yeah. And I always look fondly back on this particular song because it was the band's only original song and we played it live, mm. yeah? And at that time, round about that time, Pink Floyd were beginning to be really popular, yeah? And, of course, they had lots of sound effects and lighting effects in their music. Yeah. So one day at band practice, someone picked up the PA amplifier and knocked it and it made this explosive sound. I think um, guitar players and people who know about PAs will probably know why that happened. I think it was the reverb unit inside the amp. Right. And it knocked it, and it made this like, like an explosive sound. Yeah. And we thought, oh, my God, this is just like Pink Floyd. So honestly, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. When we went and played it live, 
at a particular moment in that song, Brian would go over to the PA amp and pick it up with his finger and yeah. drop it on the ground. Yeah. So this explosion would go through the PA system. Yeah. Did it, <laughs> did it work or yeah. what? Yeah. yeah. And we did it every time we played that song. He'd go over and pick it up and drop it just to create that sound. I mean, it was just mental. Would have given the crowd a fright, I suppose. Well, we thought it was a big, powerful moment. Yeah, yeah. In the tune. Argus also supported an African band. Yeah, that was really good. That was a band called Osabisa. I think they're based in England. That was a big thing for us. Yeah. We got the support for that. At the Regent Theatre. Yeah. It was really good. They were amazing. They were full of, um, like, a, I don't know, a 10-piece band with truckloads of percussion and guitars and drummers and, mm. you know, and it was obviously really colourful because they were African, dressed in African clothes. We were lucky to get that gig. So yeah, that was it. our first mm. professional kind of concert, you know. And here we were, a cover band. Yeah. So how did you manage to get that gig? I can't remember. I can't remember how we got that. Someone well, they obviously needed a local band to support. be the support act. So I think we played for half an hour or something. Yeah. Um, but it was really good. The other international band we played with in Dunedin was Blood, Sweat and Tears. All right. And they're from America, and they're also a jazz fusion slash pop rock type group. Again, a, a big band with horn players, slick musicians. Mm. And we got the support for that as well a year or so later, or six months later or something. And um, we ended up with a photo in the program, you know, in the program that's handed out to people you could, that you could buy. And that also was a great gig to do. So those two concerts by themselves helped develop us as a sort of a confident band because you can't, t- that was at the town hall. You can't just turn up at a concert like that and just wing yeah. it, you know. Yeah. So all those things helped sort of consolidate what we were doing. It sounds like a good experience. It was. So how long did Argus last for? Argus only lasted for about a year. Right. It went for um, middle of 74, just before the middle of 75. Mm. I think Peter left to go back to Auckland, and then we got a keyboard player in called Murray Stewart. Keyboard player instead of a second guitarist, because Pete and Chris were both the guitar players. And so Murray came in and played keyboards. Yes, that changed the sound a little bit, but we learned some Steely Dan songs and, you know, keyboards suited that. So it mellowed us a little bit. But to be honest, I still enjoyed it. We still played all around Dunedin. Yeah. We played all sorts of pubs and bars and, and uh, private functions for that year. And so, so yeah, I didn't mind it. Were you a bit gutted when Argus stopped? Um, or? I, I don't think so. No. I think when, when Murray joined and that sort of the energy kind of was different, as I just said. Yeah. I don't know how we ended up. Breaking up, I think it was just a mutual decision. No mm. one was too bothered. Yeah, I think we just said, "Yeah, time for a new time, adventure." Time. It's not really going anywhere anymore, you know. Yeah. So that's just the way that went. You're listening to Count Four and You're In, our father and son podcast, where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodica. So you just finished up with Argus. So what did you do for music after then? Well, there wasn't a lot going on musically after that. There was a bit of a a lull period, I think. And then I went back to Holland because mum and dad had booked a a trip a long time ago and I was actually saving some money from any gigs that we might have had to go to Holland because mum and dad were very keen to go back to see their family. We came over in 1961 and this is now 1975, and mum and dad hadn't been back to Holland. Yeah. So they asked Peter and Mika, my brother and sister, and myself, if we wanted to go with them. 
And I said, well, I'll, I'll go. They bought the ticket, but I said, I'll get my own spending money. Mika said the same. But Peter couldn't go because Peter was studying at Teachers College. He'd already left home. And yeah. he was studying Teachers College in Wellington, so he couldn't go on the trip. So just the four of us went. And so we went for three months. And it was really good because I'd been really busy with school and then work and then bands Loving every minute of it, being yeah. an Argus. It was just incredible. So it felt kind of okay to have a break and do this trip. It would have been different for you too, going back, considering you're so much older. And when you left, you were four years old. Exactly. So so much new things totally. to explore and look at. Totally. Well, it was an eye-opener. Really, yeah. it was an eye-opener. I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but my mother is one of 11. So her brothers and sisters are all my uncles and aunties. Yeah. I've got 44 cousins. So when we went back to Holland, mum and dad wanted to show us off to everybody. And yeah. so we traipsed around Holland pretty much, going visiting all the aunties and uncles, all mum's brothers and sisters, and of course my dad's family. That's a lot of cousins having 44 I know, cousins. and there's a lot of families to visit. Yeah. And I have to say that uh, about three quarters of the way through that trip, I was starting to get homesick. Yeah. I was starting to miss the music, miss the drumming starting to panic that I was developing as a drummer and, and I'm, I'm away for a bit longer than I anticipated, you know, and I didn't want to lose the momentum, I guess. Yeah. I was actually thinking that while I was in Holland. And for a little while there, I was a bit like, oh, can this be over so we can go home? Mm. But as it turns out, I rode it out, you know, and I had a wonderful, wonderful holiday. What did you do while you were over there? You were staying with your cousins or relatives? Well, or? we basically stayed with family. I went... Camping twice. The first time I went camping very quickly, I'll tell you this very quick story. Um, went camping, I met up with two musicians from Dunedin who I used to be in a, in a band with for a little while. I'll call them the two Grahams. I was only filled in for them a few times. So they were going to be in Europe at the same time as me. So we decided to hook up together. So he said, I'm going to be in Amsterdam that time. And, and he said, well, I'll see you there. He said, maybe you could leave the family for a couple of days and the three of us could camp in the middle of Amsterdam. I said, that's a great idea. So mum and dad said, yeah, you go to Amsterdam and catch up with your friends. And so I did that. And of course, Amsterdam being the marijuana capital, we ended up asked on a street corner if we wanted to buy some hash. And one of the guys said, oh, yeah, we'll buy a little bit of hash. So it was very cheap, a little, little block of hash. And um, I think I paid $25 towards it. And we took it back to the camping ground. And we thought, oh, we'll get back in the tent and we'll smoke this thing. Well, absolutely nothing happened. <laughs> like, nothing oh, happened. Oh, what not did they a, sell you? Not, I've got no idea. <laughs> like, zilch happened. Oh. I don't know what it was, but we, were, ripped off. We, we ended up very, very disappointed. And so that was one time I went camping. And the second time I went camping was when I went to Germany with my cousins, took Mika and I camping away from mum and dad, and we went camping and we had a brilliant time there. Yeah, as you do on a summer holiday, I met a, a, a lovely girl. Yeah. And we spent a couple of weeks together. And Mika, my sister, Mika met a Dutch guy in the next tent. Bunch of young dudes yeah, yeah. from Amsterdam, in Germany too. She developed a friendship with this guy called Harry. And lo and behold, when we got back to New Zealand, she saved up all the money and went straight back to him and has been there ever since 1976. She's a complete Dutch lady. She's married yeah. a Dutchman. She's got three wonderful kids. They're my nephews. Talk about change your whole life. You're listening to Count Four and you're in. 
So after your great family holiday in Holland, you ended up back in Dunedin. Yep. And I got straight back into um, seeing all my friends and getting amongst the action to catch up with everybody again. And the other thing I was keen to do was reconnect with your mother. Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell me more, he says. So, How did you meet? Well, I met mum at a, at a little downstairs club called The Stage Door. The Stage Door was in Mance Street in Dunedin, which is next door and underneath. It's no longer there now. It's a car park. But the Dunedin Musicians Club is still in Man Street now. Oh, yes. And a little bit left of that, where the car park is, used to be a building, and underneath it was a basement nightclub called the Stage Door. When I say nightclub, I'm talking about a, a teenage nightclub. Yeah. Not licensed. That was where bands played and teenagers could come because that was the entertainment. Teenagers went out all the time to non-licensed venues yeah. to see bands. And Argus was playing down there one night because Argus was a regular there with some bands from Christchurch and other local bands. So I go down the stairs from the street. You go down the steps into the building. Stage is on the right. And then if I walk in and go diagonally to the right-hand corner, is an upstairs area where you put your jackets. There's a coat check. You used yeah. to be able to hang your coats up. Yeah. I think the toilet was up there too. And so as I'm going along towards the upstairs, there's a there's a bench seat at the back of the room and I see two girls there. And one of them is Lynn and she's in a shiny yellow satin shirt and jeans. And beside her is her friend. And as I'm going past there, she looked at me and she smiled at me. And <laughs> I've never actually, I'm a bit slow with women. And I probably have been all my life, although I got better when I was older. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and got touring overseas and stuff. But in those early days, yep, I was still the naive young Catholic boy. I wasn't quick to just front up, you know. But anyway, she was smiled at me, and I kind of smiled back at her and thought, oh, she smiled at me. So I went up, got rid of my jacket, and I thought, damn it, Stuff I'm just going to go down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went down there and went and sat beside her and said, hi. That was it. Yeah. From that moment, apart from being away on tour and being long periods apart, we've been inseparable since that moment. And it's incredible how life turns out. Yeah. All these and years later. All those years later. It's incredible that that one person, that one look when she smiled at me and I made that decision to go and sit next to her, I was 17. Yeah. And... We're still inseparable, and we're still a team, and it's incredible. Keep listening to Count Four, and you're in. So how about the music? What did you do musically when you got back into Dunedin? There wasn't a lot going on for me musically, really. I had to re-establish myself to a degree because I wasn't in any band. Yeah. So I was looking to get playing again, obviously, at some point. But what was most important, that I went back to my day job. So when I went to Europe... Um, I had left my uh, job. My boss had given me three months leave without pay. And the job would be there for me when I got back. So when I came back from Europe, apart from trying to find music, I just went straight back to the job. And it was quite amazing because I got back to work at the South Eden Post Office, as they tell it, and I was looking at life completely differently. Like that Europe trip just opened my eyes. Mm. Like I've just been to the other side of the world and see how the other countries live. And I 
got back to the post office, I think it was probably day one or day two, where I realised, actually, there's more to life than this. And I don't think you can see yourself working here yeah. from here on in forever. Yeah. What, are you going to be at the post office forever? These were the questions I was asking myself. What about your music? What about Lynn? All these things were, were questions in my mind. Yeah. Really, it was only a matter of weeks till I got home from work one night from the post office and I got a call from a guy called Craig Johnston. I kind of knew yeah. who he was. He was a local drummer, but, but we'd never really met. And he went on to explain to me that he was putting together a new band project and he was sounding me out and asking me if I would be interested in exploring that with him and could I perhaps be part of this new project. And that project was going to lead on to Mother Goose. You've been listening to Count Four and You're In, a father and son podcast where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodica. Listen out for the next episode. This podcast series is engineered and produced by Barry McConaughey in Dunedin, New Zealand. Music